When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. We have to start by building a wall. I'm not going to pay for that wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. I mean, everything's negotiable. It's not negotiable about building it. I actually said, no, building it, not negotiable. If they ever get up there, they're in trouble. Because there's no way to get down. Maybe a rope. Hello, and welcome to TrumpCast, the show about Donald Trump, the man who won't let you give a speech at his big convention in July unless you promise, like really promise, you won't say anything mean about him. My name is Leon Nafok, your guest host while Jacob Weisberg is away on vacation. As I record this, it's Monday, and Donald Trump has been uncharacteristically quiet. Hardly any tweets, no comment on the big Supreme Court decision on abortion, and no elaboration on his thoughts regarding Brexit. Maybe he's still recovering from jet lag after his visit to Scotland, or maybe he just figured he'd fall back a little bit make us want him again, and remind us what it feels like with no Donald Trump to pay attention to. A quiet Trump is not a Trump we know what to do with at this point. Luckily, though, he's not the only member of the Trump team who matters. As Julia Yaffe reported today in a piece for Politico magazine, the Trump campaign has been benefiting lately from the presence of a younger, more articulate, possibly even stranger individual than the candidate himself. His inconspicuous name, Stephen Miller. His inconspicuous title, Senior Policy Advisor. But as Yaffe describes in her profile of Miller, he's a young man who has met his moment, moving from the pages of the student newspaper at Duke to an influential job in the office of hyper-conservative Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions into the orbit of a candidate whose brand of populist nationalism he believes will be the salvation of this country. We will hear more about Stephen Miller from Julia Yaffe in just a moment. But first, let's hit the tweets. Just landed in New York. One night stay in Scotland, Turnberry came out magnificently. My son Eric did a great job under budget. Crooked Hillary caught it totally wrong on Brexit. She went with Obama and now she says we need her to lead. She would be a disaster. Clinton is trying to wash away her bad judgment call on Brexit with big dollar ads. Disgraceful. I have never liked the media term mass deportation, but we must enforce the laws of the land. George Will, one of the most overrated political pundits who lost his way long ago, has left the Republican Party. He's made many bad calls. So my guest today is Julia Yaffe, a contributing writer, Politico magazine, and Highline, and a columnist of foreign policy. You may remember Julia's recent GQ piece on Melania Trump, which earned her hordes of anti-Semitic trolls on Twitter. This week, Julia has a new story out in Politico magazine about a man you probably never heard of before today named Stephen Miller. Miller is a senior policy advisor to Trump, and he's been a regular fixture lately on the campaign trail, serving as a sort of opening act at rallies and a liaison to conservative media behind the scenes. Uh, Julia, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell me, how did you become aware of this guy? When did you first come across him? So I first saw uh, Stephen Miller perform, and I, it is a performance, at a rally in Milwaukee, right ahead of the Wisconsin primary. And, you know, everybody's waiting for Trump to go on. Everybody's there for Trump. And this guy walks onto the stage, and one of the kind of veteran campaign reporters, I had just kind of parachuted in, one of the veteran campaign reporters turned to me and goes, here comes the real crazy. <laughs> And what's interesting about him is that when he speaks, you know, he gets the crowd going, he starts speaking loudly, he um, he sounds impassioned, but his face doesn't move at all and doesn't, his eyes are pretty <laughs> expressionless. Uh -huh. um, so for me, it was very st strange to discover that this guy has always been and is still a true believer in all of the stuff he says, that this isn't a cynical thing that he's just using to throw some red meat out to the crowd and get them, you know, warmed up before Donald Trump goes out there and just spitballs for an hour. This guy really believes the stuff he's saying. And what I perceived as cynicism was actually just methodical rhetorical plotting. Right. So the headline on your piece is The Believer. Um, what does Miller believe? Uh, he obviously has some very strongly held views on what is wrong with America. What what are those views? And what he believes is that the American people are not being heard in Washington, that Washington has been taken over by special interests, and it doesn't really matter Democrat or Republican. They're all the same. They don't really listen. I mean, Republicans are a bit better, but they're still completely corrupt and beholden to special interests, especially on issues like trade and immigration. People like Stephen Miller aren't just talking about illegal immigration. They're also talking about legal immigration. They're talking about the abuse of H-1B visas, for example, by corporations that just use them. And this has been you know, documented and it's been written up in reputable places like uh, the New York Times that corporations with a lot of sway do actually use H-1B visas not to bring in highly specialized workers, but to bring in cheaper workers from Asia, for example. Mm -hmm. And they just use them to swap out s slightly more expensive American workers. So he uh, he's a really passionate believer in this, that the American people have been screwed over by corporations, by government. And he has been at the forefront, at the vanguard of this idea, this ideology, since long before Trump came on the scene. So it's, it sounds like he is a perfect fit for Donald Trump along pretty much every dimension that you just uh, walked us through. How did he find his way to the Trump campaign? Well, to some extent, it's that the Trump campaign kind of appeared. Stephen Miller has been doing the legwork of building, helping build this movement for nearly a decade. And we should say, by the way, that he's 30 years old. So when you say yeah. he's been doing it for a decade, you're talking about like since college. That's right. He, he turns 31 in August. So he's almost 31. But yes, he's quite young. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, even before he graduated college, even during college, he was working on this kind of stuff and was an ardent advocate of this ideology when it was still very much on the fringes of the Republican Party. So in some ways, for people who are like Stephen Miller, it's more that Trump appeared and they could project their ideology onto him or their ideology kind of dovetailed with his. So in some ways, it's that Trump found Miller and that Trump found Miller's old boss, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, who 
is known as the fifth most conservative senator, but he's also the most nativist. He has been the one leading the charge against immigration. He was instrumental to killing comprehensive immigration reform. And his right-hand man in all of this was Stephen Miller, helping to formulate the message, helping getting it out there, helping to make sure these ideas got out, especially in the conservative media sphere. And both Sessions and Miller and other members of Sessions staff have been advising the Trump campaign in a kind of unofficial capacity, basically throughout the fall and winter and spring. His official position on the Trump campaign is senior policy advisor. I feel like it doesn't quite tell the story of what he really does. Tell us about how Miller asserts himself on the campaign and how his influence is felt. You're absolutely right. So originally, it was kind of a policy advisor role. He helped the Trump campaign formulate their anti-immigration message back in the fall. But when he formally joined the campaign in January, you know, he's a very ambitious young man. And ahead of the Florida primary, where if you recall, that was Marco Rubio's last stand. Well, Stephen Miller really hates Marco Rubio for his role in the Gang of Eight compromise in comprehensive immigration reform back in 2013-2014. And, you know, he buttonholed Donald Trump and was telling him about all the evils that are embodied in Marco Rubio. And Trump said, all right, okay, just go talk about it on media, whatever, and like do a speech. And then ever since then, he's been warming up crowds. And it's not quite a policy advisor role. He's kind of a carnival barker, motivational speaker, but also like this vintage kind of roof-raising, political, speechifying thing that he does is just so, it's so bizarre. And it's not quite what a policy advisor generally does on a campaign. Right. But at the same time, he also sometimes seems to be really out of the loop. I, for example, got in touch with him the day Corey Lewandowski, the former campaign manager, was fired. And he was not aware that he had been fired. And even though it was like a few hours after this had happened. So I was the one to break the news to him, which also is strange given that he's a senior policy advisor. So, you know, (laughs) it's, it's said that the Trump campaign is quite kind of chaotic and nobody really knows what they're doing and their titles don't really mean much. And everybody just ends up doing everything and nothing at the same time. And the only people with real influence are people like Manafort, who's Trump's contemporary. He tends to trust people who are his age or his children. So (laughs) the other people like Stephen Miller kind of take on these very strange roles. Right. Um, From your rendering, it seems like he and Trump are really quite different in terms of how they present themselves in terms of their background. I'd love for you to just sort of describe for us kind of like how he comes off when he speaks. I mean, you you were saying earlier that he has this kind of odd affect and, and, and kind of a surprising disconnect between what he's saying and what his face is doing. Can you tell us at all about sort of what his rhetoric is like and, and, and uh, what, what makes him old fashioned, I believe is how you described it in the piece? They are extremely different. That's, that's part of the weirdness of the whole thing is that to see Trump follow somebody like Stephen Miller, it's, you know, to use a cliche, it's day and night. It's so weird that they, that they're on the same stage. Trump gets up there. He doesn't really speak in full sentences. I think what's been amazing to watch about Trump is that when you're listening to him, it's one thing. If you see his words written down, you know, and transcribed, it it makes very little sense. It's these kind of staccato half sentences 
kind of um, Hemingway on crack. <laughs> you know, everything's terrific and great, and it's the same adjectives over and over again, and no thought is ever really complete, and it's all about him. Whereas Miller, he also extemporizes. He's also not speaking from notes. He also doesn't write this stuff up in advance. But you can sense a very clear rhetorical skeleton in his speech, that he can sense the crowd despite his awkwardness, that he knows how much time he has and, and he can talk as long or as little as he needs to. You know, it's almost like um, what one expects to have learned in, you know, like in debate class in the 1950s, mm-hmm. very florid, ornate language and use of parallel structure and allusions and alliterations, like all these kind of, it's very textbook in a way, but he uses it to great effect. He really, he uses it to kind of stir up feelings of resentment and paranoia and anger and passion in the crowd, even though it's often a less educated crowd, he's saying things like, I want you to shout so loud that it quivers the conference tables in Washington, D.C. And so the question I have for all of you, and I want you to shout so loud that everyone who betrayed you, everyone who let you down, everybody who betrayed families like the Kate Steinle family, everybody who betrayed families like the Carrier families in Indianapolis, Everybody who ignored your cries and pleas for help, I want you to shout so loud that it quivers the conference tables in Washington, D.C. Are you prepared, folks, to elect as president a man who will put America first, last, and always? Are you prepared to elect Donald J. Trump as president of these United States? Are you prepared to take back your country? Are you prepared for real change on behalf of America? God bless all of you. God bless this state. And God bless the United States of America. Thank you. Especially, he's also, I have to say, he's the way he's dressed. He's dressed in this super sharp suit. Thin lapels, pocket square, you know, like plumb line tie, and then the slicked back hair and the receding forehead, uh, hairline and the shiny forehead. He looks like, you know, like a dictator from, you know, 1930s radio or something. So I want to talk a bit about where Miller came from. This is a guy with really fervent views, particularly on immigration. And I'm curious, what, what was it about his upbringing that made him this way? Stephen Miller, I was shocked to discover, is a Jewish kid from a Democratic family in Santa Monica, California, which, as some listeners would know, is quite a liberal place. Miller told me that he was pulled in a different direction early, and he was, you know, subscribing to Guns and Ammo and reading the book of NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre on the correlation between guns and crime. And you know, started listening to talk radio early. And I think the fact that he was interested in these ideas, but surrounded by this kind of hippie liberalism. You know, I've heard Santa Monica described as the Berkeley of Southern California. And I think that disconnect between what's happening inside of him and what's happening around him kind of radicalized him. Plus, I think he is just that kind of person. Like, I mean, I I hate to say this, but I studied Soviet history in college, and he very much reminded me of a lot of the people you come across in early Soviet history or pre-revolutionary Russian history, these kind of ardent believers who have this ideological tunnel vision, and the more the world around them is kind of resistant to their views, the more they're hardened and set in these views and see that anything 
that is in any way a deviation from their views is an immoral deviation and is kind of an enemy view. Mm -hmm. In Miller's case, he started trying to, I think he felt very alienated in his high school, especially after 9-11. He was a very patriotic kid. He wrote columns in various conservative publications about, for example, how wonderful America is because it got rid of slavery in only 90 years, and that's because we're so committed to freedom. 9-11 hits, and he's just, I think he's really shocked, like a lot of people were. Mm -hmm. um, kids in the school lost parents in the attack in 9-11. One of the planes, you know, took off from L.A. And he sees his school's response as very kind of pacifist and critical of America, and he starts protesting. And he calls into conservative talk radio and complaining about his school and in, thereby infuriating school administrators. And it often yielded a kind of compromise, like these conservative speakers that he wanted to come speak at his school would be allowed to come after a lot of fighting, or the Pledge of Allegiance would be said, not every day, but twice a week. But this, I think, really radicalized and hardened him. And he brought this into Duke University with him, where, where he had a lot of the same kinds of fights with the Duke University administration. So from everything you just said, I, 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 I'm... I'm trying to figure out if this is someone who is like a weirdo who's repeatedly found a place for himself against the odds or if he has actually succeeded throughout his career at like bending the universe in his direction. Like you, you write in the piece that he converted his Democratic parents into Republicans. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, has he has he actually had an impact on like how people talk about immigration, how Jeff Sessions thinks about immigration's uh, immigration? Has he had an impact on how Trump thinks? What, what what would you point to as sort of his um I guess legacy is not quite the right word, but like what could he legitimately claim? What is a 30-year-old's legacy, right? So yeah. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing is I think it's a combination of those things. So he Miller definitely thinks in terms of legacy. And he even told me that, so he was famous in the Senate for sending out these long tirades about the budget or about immigration. And he would just, he'd spam reporters and other congressional staffers. Some rolled their eyes at it. Some were affected by it or took it to heart. But he was like, oh, you know, I left Sessions' office, office so fast, I didn't get a chance to make a book out of all those emails. Mm -hmm. He's very much thinking and acting with an eye of his impact, where he's going, how it can affect policy and actual change on the ground. And, you know, you, you get the sense of somebody who's really very quite methodical and ambitious and thinking many steps ahead. This isn't just some weirdo who you know, happens to read Newsmax and follow Alex Jones. He brought in a lot of allies to this movement. One of the reasons that Breitbart, for example, has become such a kind of red-hot center of Trump support and support for these radical views on immigration, a lot of it is Miller's work. You know, he helped Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, the late founder of Breitbart, helped him meet a lot of the people on the Hill, helped kind of – he was constantly – messaging his reporters with scoops and information and constantly, you know, socializing with them. And he was doing this for various other conservative outlets. He made sure to 
make allies with some of the most potent and loud voices on that side of the political spectrum, Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson of Daily Caller. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are people who still go to bat for him, who still print everything he says, who will write up every single television appearance he does and do the same for Trump, too. I also think that, you know, all those people who come to the rallies and hear, in some ways, if Trump is the id of that movement, Miller is the kind of articulate distillation of what they're supposed to stand for. He's the one who kind of lays it out point by point in a very kind of inflammatory way. This is what we believe. This is what we're fighting against. This is where we're going. Right. So he's this kind of very clear distillate of everything the crowd is feeling and everything that Trump is giving them. And I don't think that's to be underestimated. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was uh, so much fun, and I hope everybody reads your piece, The Believer in the Political Magazine. Thanks so much, Julia. Thank you so much for having me, Leon. That is it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Jason DeLeon, whose senior policy advisor is a 13-year-old commenter from Reddit. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, who, unlike Donald Trump, needs no opening act. Andy Bowers, who understands Stephen Miller because he too got his taste for extreme nativism during a stint in Santa Monica, is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Leon Nafok. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast. The Dirty Poll, done by at ABC, at Washington Post, is a disgrace. Even they admit many more Democrats were polled. Other polls were good.